I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Last week, we began a new sermon series. We're going to walk through this letter of the Apostle Paul. Uh, we looked at, we did a bunch of introductory stuff, and then we looked at the first two verses. Today, we will pick things up in a few moments at verse 3. Earlier this week, uh, it was late one evening, I went downstairs at my home and sat down in front of the TV to watch some sports highlights. Uh, a few minutes later, my son Brennan came and plunked himself down on the couch next to me, kind of not sitting, but lounging. And, uh, and a thought crossed Brennan's mind. I don't know what prompted it, but he thought to himself, I wonder if dad is ticklish anywhere other than his feet. It's been no mystery to my family that my feet are extremely ticklish, but somehow for the last 17 years, I guess, I kept that in the dark from Brennan that there were other places that were ticklish too. And so as he lounged there, he saw his opportunity and he drove his toes into my ribs and he got me just right. And, and, and I jumped, you know, that, that just where it, it, it forced a reaction. It was reflexive. You don't think about it. You, it just happens. It's, it's automatic. He, he got me good and he found that terribly amusing. Wow, you're ticklish somewhere other than your feet. I trust you with that information. This morning, as we move further into our study of the, the letter to the Philippians, there is a sense in which we get to watch Paul have one of those moments where he just jumps, where reflexively something happens. It's automatic. He doesn't think about it. He, 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 he hears about, he remembers the Philippians, and he, he, he reacts reflexively. It's one of those, oh, only for him. It's not someone driving their toes into his ribs. It's, it's remembering the Philippians remembering these brothers and sisters in the Lord, and he, he reacts, he breaks out into thanksgiving to God. Here's how Eugene Peterson puts it in his paraphrase of, of Philippians. He says, every time you cross my mind, I break out in exclamations of thanks to God. He remembers them and he, he thanks God for them. It's just reflexive, it's, it's automatic, it's this spontaneous reaction of gratitude to God for the Philippians. That's what we're going to look at this morning, Paul's prayer of thanksgiving to God for these believers. Now, last week we spent a considerable amount of time unpacking some background uh, contextual information. We're not going to go over all of that, but I do want to just touch briefly on a few things. First, this is a letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to a church he planted about 13 years before this letter was written by him. He planted it. You can read about it in Acts 16. If you haven't gone there yet, I encourage you to do that. Not now, but later. Read the story of Paul planting this church. Second, this church is located in the city of Philippi in Europe. This is the beginning of gospel expansion into Europe. And Philippi was a unique city. It was a city that had been founded and designated as a Roman colony, which meant all the citizens received Roman citizenship and then the emperor, on a couple of occasions, settled it, populated it with retired Roman soldiers, which meant a couple of things. This city uh, was, was very pro-Rome, which will play out in our letter, and, and they speak of citizenship. Paul is going to, in this letter, speak about the fact that the Philippian believers are citizens of heaven. And so this notion of Roman citizenship given to them is a significant factor. Third, Paul is writing, I already said this, writing the letter about 13 years after planting the church, but he's writing it from prison. He's, he's chained, he's in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier under, in custody. Fourth, 
he's writing to address two main concerns. Uh, Epaphroditus has traveled from Philippi to Paul, bringing a gift from them, financial support and a report. And, and so Paul has learned something. He's going to send this letter back with Epaphroditus, uh, and, and he's going to address these two things. One is these believers are suffering. We don't know a lot about it. We'll try and unpack what we can as we make our way through the letter. But they are facing suffering at the hands of some opposition. And secondly, not only is there that external problem, but internally there is some unrest as well within the church. And so Paul writes to address that. Now, uh, we're going to turn and move on. Last week we looked at the first two verses and, and saw how those introduced us to some major themes, that servanthood is the shape of discipleship, that we are slaves, servants of Christ. We belong to Christ. We live our lives for Christ. We, we were reminded of the holiness and the oneness that we, uh, we enjoy as God's people. And thirdly, the gospel, that we receive grace, and through grace we have peace with God. Let's turn now to verse 3. I'm going to read th- verse 3 to verse 8. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I want to do five things with you this morning in the time we have together. First, very briefly, a word about the structure of, of our passage in its immediate context. Second, I want to examine the character and the content of Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. Third, we will unpack the nature of the Philippian partnership in the gospel. That's a significant fact. Uh, Fourth, we'll reflect on Paul's confidence regarding the future for the Philippians. And then fifth, we'll consider Paul's affection for the Philippian believers. So first, the structural matter. I I want you simply to note this, that that in your Bible, if you have an NIV or ESV, after those introductory verses we looked at last week, verses 3 to 11 form one section. It probably has a heading that says something like thanksgiving and prayer. Uh, what is happening here in these verses, verses 3 to 11, we just looked at 3 to 8, 3 to 11 is a prayer report. Uh, Paul is writing to the Philippian believers, and after his introductory verses that we looked at last week, he is sharing with them a report about what he's praying. Uh, and it has two parts. We're looking at part one, his thanksgiving, verses one to eight. He, he gives thanks to God for the Philippians every time he remembers them. Verses nine to 11 is also a part of his prayer report, but there, instead of thanksgiving, it's petition, intercession. So he's telling them, here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying and thanking God for you. We're going to look at that today. And then, not next week, but the week after, when we come back to Philippians, verses nine to 11, he will pray and tell them what he's praying to God for them, how he's interceding for them. So together, this forms his prayer report. We're going to look at prayer report part one today, verses three to eight. The second thing we wanted to do today uh, that I want to do with you is examine the character and the content of Paul's prayer. A number of things can be said. First, Paul's thanksgiving is directed to God. Verse three, I thank my God every time I remember you. Certainly, it is a good and right thing to express our thanks horizontally. That is, to express thanks to one another. 
Uh, Paul will do that, in fact. Uh, the, the letter to Philippians is, is occasioned by Epaphroditus coming from Philippi to Paul in Rome, where he is under arrest, bringing a financial gift. He is going to thank them for supporting him, thank them for their financial gift. In fact, if you skip ahead to chapter 4, Paul's going to say thank you there. Um, not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to you. That's where Paul's going to say, I've learned to be content with plenty or in need. It, so it's not the gift so much that he is, he's going to thank them for the gift, but, but his, he's thankful for them. It's, it's not about things. And, and he thanks God for the Philippians. He thanks God for how the gospel is at work in them. His thanks is, his, his eyes are looking up to God, thanking God for these believers. Second, Paul prays regularly for them. Every time he remembers them, each time he thinks of them, each time they come to mind, he bursts into prayer and begins by thanking God for them. Uh, remember how Peterson put it, every time you cross my mind, I break out in exclamations of thanks to God. It's not that Paul is unceasingly praying for them, but he continually prays for them over and over again. And every time he prays for them, he thanks God for them. That's what he's saying. He remembers them and he prays for them. Every time he prays for them, he thanks God for them. Third, Paul's prayer of thanks is characterized by joy, and that is important. Joy is a significant theme throughout the letter of Philippians. And uh, listen, verse 4, in all my prayers for all of you, the quick bunny trail, for all of you, remember last time he, in chapter 1, to, to all God's holy people, there was this emphasis on all of them. One of the internal things that's going on is causing some division. There's this internal strife. And so he makes a point of all of you, and we, we encounter that here in numerous places. He's going to emphasize that all of you, all of you, all of you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Joy characterizes Paul's prayer of thanksgiving to God for the Philippians. Now, what is critical for us to remember are the circumstances out of which Paul is writing. He, he is, first, remember, there are problems in this church. Paul is writing to the Philippians because they are experiencing suffering. And he's writing to them because there is this internal unrest going on. Not all is well in this church, yet Paul prays and gives thanks to God with joy. Not only that, but Paul himself is writing from, from captivity. He's in prison. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And yet he prays for the Philippians, and he does so giving thanks to God with joy. And that highlights a critical truth, that joy is rooted in not our current circumstances, but it is rooted in what is true about us in God. Here's how Stephen Lawson writes, puts it. He says, such joy is a fruit of the Spirit that only God can produce. This evidence of grace is a deep gladness in the heart that knows all is well in the Lord. Such an inner exuberance is not a feeling that is dependent upon favorable circumstances. Genuine joy runs far deeper. We need to hear this. The Christian joy, this fruit of the Spirit joy, this joy that God produces in His children is a joy that is not dependent upon our circumstances. Happiness does. Happiness, the word, comes from happenings. Happiness is related to what's happening. Joy is deeper. Joy is a gift of the Spirit. Joy is rooted in God, in who God is, in what is true of us in, through faith in God. 
that this deep gladness in the heart that knows all is well in the Lord. Let me pause for a moment and ask the question of each one of us. Are our lives characterized by this joy? Are our prayers characterized by this joy? A joy that is not affected by what's going on in our world around us. A joy that is not anchored to what is happening. A joy that comes from the Spirit. A joy that is rooted in Christ and in the Gospel. Are our eyes fixed on the Gospel, on Christ, our Redeemer, on His promises, on all that is true in Christ? Or are our eyes fixed on earthly things, things that are passing away, lesser things, things that will never satisfy our souls? Paul, chained to a guard, in prison, writing to Christians who are suffering, and he prays with thanksgiving that is characterized by joy. Fourth, Paul gives thanks with joy because, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We're going to unpack in a moment this notion of partnership, but, but for now, this is his prayer. Paul thinks of, he remembers the Philippians, and he always prays, giving thanks to God with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. This is what's going on. He, he's praising, giving thanks to God regularly every time he remembers them with joy, a joy that comes from God that's not rooted in circumstances because of their partnership in the gospel. Let's turn to the third thing we wanted to do this morning, and that is unpack the nature of this partnership with Paul, this partnership in the gospel. Verse 5 Paul points to the fact that his joy and his thanksgiving are rooted in their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, is what we read in verse 5. That is, that is the basis of his joy. That is one of the things that serves as a motivator, a reason for his thanksgiving. But what does it mean to speak of their partnership in the gospel? Paul's eyes... Paul's gaze is riveted to Jesus, riveted on Jesus, riveted on the gospel, the, the message that through faith in Christ we receive salvation, that through faith in Christ our sins are forgiven, that through faith in Christ we are declared righteous. If you're here, if you're with us online and you do not know Jesus, you haven't put your faith in Jesus, let me speak to you for a moment. Christianity is not about us cleaning ourselves up. It is not about us being good enough. It is not about us earning anything. Christianity is an invitation to those who have nothing, those who are bankrupt spiritually, to come to Jesus and receive what we can receive only through Him, by His grace. We come to Christ... Blessed are the poor in spirit, is how Jesus says it at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who realize they have nothing, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are brought into relationship with God. We are made citizens of heaven. We are adopted as daughters and sons of God through faith in Christ because our sins 
are forgiven. Jesus' death on the cross is applied to our lives. Our sins are nailed to the cross. Christ dies in our place, bearing the penalty for our sin. And through faith in Christ, we are credited. It's not just that we're forgiven and we have a blank slate, but our account is filled up with the righteousness of Jesus. We are declared holy and righteous in Christ. That's what Christianity is about. And so if you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you have this sense of, oh, I don't measure up or I couldn't do this or I'm not inter- I, I, can't, I can't do that, I just want to say to you, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. Receive his grace. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his righteousness. Uh, Receive adoption. Move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. From death to life. That's the gospel, and that animates Paul. His eyes are riveted to Jesus and to the good news. It drives him. It shapes him. His life is centered upon Christ who he is, and the work of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus, who made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant, and obeying even to death, death on a cross. Paul's going to say that in chapter 2. He's going to point to Jesus and all that Jesus has done, humbling himself, dying for us, serving us out of love for us so that in Him we receive life. That is what animates Paul, Christ, and the good news about Christ. And so here, Paul highlights the fact that the Philippians are partners with him in the gospel, meaning in proclaiming, in the spread of the gospel, they are with him. They are partners in that. In, in making Jesus known, in, in proclaiming in word and deed the good news that in Christ we can be saved, that in Christ we can receive adoption. They, they are partners with him in, in a number of ways. One, they, they have just sent him a monetary gift. They have sacrificially given to support him and his gospel ministry. But more than that, they, they live as citizens of heaven in the Roman colony of Philippi. It's not only that they give to Paul, it's, it's bigger than that. He says, from the first day until now. That is, their, their partnership involves supporting Paul, loving Paul, but it's also in spreading the gospel in Philippi, living out the truths of the gospel, living as citizens not of Rome, but as citizens of heaven, living the life of the future and the present, living as a colony of heaven in the midst of this colony of Rome. That's what Paul will call them to. We will see that as we make our way through the letter. One thing that's interesting to note is that the word translated here, partnership, is the Greek word some of you will have heard, koinonia, fellowship, is how we usually translate it. See, one of the problems is when we hear the word fellowship, when we, we speak of fellowship, we often think of coffee and lemon squares after church. Right? That's to have fellowship. And it's good to have coffee and lemon squares or whatever squares. Or not coffee. If you, but anyways, you get my point. It's good to connect. It's good to, to visit, to have that connection. But, but this is something deeper. What, it, what is being gotten at here is, is not just sharing something, but, but being in something with someone. To be in the same proverbial boat with people. To be engaged in the same 
adventure, the same work. When we think of the fellowship of the gospel or this partnership of the gospel, think Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring. The, the nine souls who together entered into this mission, this adventure to destroy the single ring. We are, they are partners in the gospel. They are, are in this fellowship for the gospel. They belong together. They are engaged. They are in this together. And Paul, though Paul and the Philippians are separated from one another by hundreds of miles, yet they remain in this partnership for the gospel to make Jesus known in all the earth, to proclaim Jesus in both word and in deed, to live for Jesus for the sake of the gospel being made known. Their partnership in the gospel has been, Paul says, from the first day until now. From, from the day when Paul and his companions went outside the city gate at Philippi and they met Lydia and they met other women from her household, other women there, and they shared the good news about Jesus and Lydia was converted in her household. And fr From the day that Paul, in his exasperation, turned and, and cast out that demon in the slave girl, from, from the day when Paul and Silas were flogged and imprisoned in stocks and, and God had sent an earthquake and, and they were free and the jailer was going to kill himself and Paul said, don't, we're all here. And that night, that jailer and his family put their faith in Jesus and they washed Paul and Silas's wounds and then they were washed in the waters of baptism from the first day. Paul was there. He, he planted this church. He proclaimed the gospel. He was there as those first people came to faith in Jesus and the church in Philippi was, was born. Paul says, from the first day until now, you are in this partnership. You are with us in the cause of Christ. You are with us in the cause of proclaiming and spreading the good news about Jesus. Gordon Fee says this, every word spoken and every deed done in behalf of the gospel from the moment of their conversion to the present, including their gift to Paul, are thus their partnership. Fourth, let's reflect on Paul's confidence regarding their future. In verse 6, we come to a clause that is uh, familiar to many of us. Paul writes, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to come on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul has just expressed his great thanksgiving to God for the Philippians with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. They have been involved, they have been in this cause of the gospel with him from the first day until now. Paul is thankful for what God has done in and through the Philippians. What God is doing and, uh, th in and through the Philippians in the present. But here he expresses more. He assures them about their future. He expresses his confidence to them, for them, for what is about to come. But, but note this, his confidence is not in them. He doesn't say, you guys are great, you've got this. No, he says, God who saved you. God who began a good work in you. God will carry on to completion what he has started. Not only 
Is God present in your past and with you now? But, but the future is sure. God's salvation has you. You are redeemed. You did nothing to accept, but to, to make yourselves acceptable. God acted to redeem you. God saved you. You were dead. He made you alive through His gift of grace. He redeemed you. And He's got you. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Thus, the Philippians, their future is not in question. Despite the fact that they are now suffering, despite even the fact that within the church there is some internal strife, their future is not in question. It is secure because they are securely in the hands of God. Their future is already, the future is already theirs in Christ. Fee again says this, believers in Christ are people of the future, a sure future that has already begun in the present. They are citizens of heaven who live the life of heaven, the life of the future in the present in whatever circumstances they find themselves. As Christians, do you realize that we already live the life of the future? We live as citizens of heaven. We are, as the church, we are a colony of heaven living in this present world. The future has already broken in. And the future is sure because of Christ who started this work in us. Our future is not in question. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. God has already begun and will bring to completion what he's doing. Paul Paul expresses his great confidence to the Philippians. Let me take a moment for us just to think through this truth in light of what is going on in our world today. There is, in our culture, there is globally such incredible polarization today around COVID. Many are living, we're all living with a certain degree of uncertainty when we look around. Many are living gripped by fear. Regardless of which end of the spectrum, there are people who are living in fear of COVID. There are people who are living in fear of vaccines and other COVID-related measures, fear of losing freedoms. What would it mean for us as a church? What would it mean for you and for me to hear these words of Christ spoken to us? That He who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What, What would it look like if we really grasp that? If we recognize that our future is not in doubt? That our future is secure until the day Christ returns, until the day when history is brought to a close, until the day of the consummation of all things, until the day of Christ. Between now and then, God will continue to work. God will, what He has begun In us, God will carry to completion. It will not fail. He will not fail. He will not stop. He will bring to completion our salvation. Our future is not insecure. It is not in question. And so that truth needs to shape our lives as a people of God. We can live with hope. We can live with confidence. We can live with peace. In the Psalms we read, even if the mountains fall in the heart of the sea, We need not fear. 
Paul says to the Philippians, from jail, to flip the Philippians who are suffering, and he says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Your future is not in question. I believe, I believe that the church today has an incredible opportunity to, to live this out before a watching and polarized world. And yet, sadly, often as Christians, we become just as polarized. Matters not which end of the spectrum you're on. And the internet isn't helping because you get caught in this echo chamber, right? The algorithm, you, you can find anything to say anything. And we can spend so much time looking at stuff. And you know what? Here's the, here's the truth. We live in a broken, fallen world where Satan is seeking to kill, steal, kill, and destroy. Like there is, there's bad stuff happening in our world. I don't have all the answers. I don't know what to believe about a lot of stuff, but I believe this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. So we need not live in fear. And we ought not to be a part of this polarization in our culture. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to focus on the gospel. We need to know and live with confidence in the future. Because God's got us. No matter what happens. No, no matter how we might suffer. No matter what freedoms we may lose. Think, Paul writes this as he's chained to a Roman soldier. He's in captivity. And he has every confidence in the world. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. He's going to write about himself. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Not knowing what was going to happen with his own trial. And he writes to the Philippians uh, this a little bit later. We're going to find this. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. There is no promise that in this life we will not suffer. In fact, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. Should we be troubled? Should we be alarmed? Should we be fearful? Should we worry? Or can we with a confident hope? Not that things will unfold the way we want them to. Not that we won't go through hard things. Not that we won't see evil have its way at times and in places in this world. But confidence because he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion to the day of Christ Jesus. That God, who has saved us, continues to work in us until the day of Christ Jesus, until Christ comes back, until history ends. God's with us. God's got us. What would it look like if in a polarized culture where there's just hatred and distrust and animosity, what if, what if we lived as an alternative? What if the church was a place of kindness where, where we didn't engage in the outrage? We demonstrated hospitality to everyone. What if we recognized the enemy behind our enemy. Someone who is seeking to do us wrong and we realize that there is one behind that enemy. Like Christ, after all, called us to love 
even our enemies? What if we did that as a church in this time? What if we were a bright alternative to what we see around us? Fifth and finally, after that eschatological digression where Paul speaks of the future, he contends this, that it is right for me to feel this way about all you, all of you again, since I have you in my heart. Whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul loves these believers. Paul planted this church. He loves them, and, and they love him. They, they have given another gift. That's the occasion of this. Paul is, in chapter 4, going to thank them for their gift, for their sacrificial generosity to support him. They love Paul, and Paul loves them, and Christ loves Paul, and Christ loves the Philippians. It's this, it's this union This three-way relationship, Christ loves both of them, and they love Christ, and they love each other. Uh, This is a picture of what the church is to look like. Christ redefines our relationships. He defines us as family, brothers and sisters, not by blood, but by His blood. Through faith in Him, we are brought together in a bond that surpasses every other bond. And Paul feels this deep affection, the affection that Christ has for him, the affection that Christ has for the Philippians. He feels that affection for the Philippian believers in my heart. His, the, the, the original speaks of entrails. It's, it's like in your guts. It's that place where you feel deeply the, the core of your being, the core of the place, he says, the deepest center of human consciousness, the seat of both the will and decision-making as well as of the emotions. In this deepest place, Paul feels this great love, the affection of Christ Jesus. He treasures them, each one of them a trophy of God's grace. We, as God's people, are called to love one another like this, to have the affection of Christ for one another. Jesus says, to his disciples, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Think about that. As I have loved you. How has Christ loved us? Christ loved us as a servant, a slave. Christ humbled himself and emptied himself. Christ suffered for us. Christ bore what I deserve, what you deserve. Christ gave all out of love for us As I have loved you, so you must love one another. We are to love one another with the affection of Christ. Wow. That's not something we produce by our own striving. It's something the Spirit of God can produce in us. We need to pray, God, help me to love my sisters. Help me to love my brothers. May we as the church... May we have the affection of Christ for one another. May we, we know Christ's affection for us and, and may that flow out of us to one another that we would live again as that alternative community. This citizens, this colony of heaven on earth. In conclusion, let me say this. There is no one greater than Christ. 
there is nothing greater than the gospel, the good news of Christ. We need to pray that the Spirit of God would give us eyes to see that. To see the glory of Jesus. The glory of the Gospel. That, that so many of the things that we are tempted to invest in our, our lives and so many of the things that we are tempted to pursue are lesser things. Can be idolatrous things. None compares to Christ. None compares to the Gospel. See, we need to so grow to love Christ and, and have the passion that Paul had for the gospel, for the good news, for, for the, the gospel ministry in our world that, that we react like Paul, that, that when we see another believer in Christ, when we see gospel ministry, when we see people bowing their knee to Jesus, surrendering to His love, receiving His grace, as we see the spread of the gospel in our world, as we see colonies of heaven springing up and growing, as we see light shattering the darkness, that, that we would erupt and be like that toe into the rib. And we just go, thank you, God, for what you are doing. Thank you for the spread of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are, for your love, your grace. That, that the gospel, the gospel of Christ and Christ would animate our lives, that we would be people who just explode in thanksgiving with joy as we see the fruit of gospel ministry, as we see that in our own lives and in our own church and beyond these walls and around the world, that, that we would be like Paul, that we would simply react, that it would be reflexive, that what would fill us with joy and thanksgiving would it be Christ and the gospel? Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Every time I remember you. Every time I remember how Christ worked in your midst. Every time I remember how Christ redeemed you. Every time I remember how God is at work through you. Every time I remember how the gospel has shaped you and how you are a partner in this with me, I give thanks with joy. May we be such a church. May we be such women and men where our greatest joy, that our reflexive reaction when we see the fruit of the gospel, the proclamation of Christ, would be to give thanks and glory to God with joy. Amen.